And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Wednesday edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Got some interesting stories to get into with you this morning. Of course, uh, yesterday was the passage of the infrastructure bill, right? So Senate passed that yesterday. Now that goes to the House and Nancy Pelosi has already said that basically she'll shelve the bill until Senate votes on the $3.5 trillion spending package for the human infrastructure bill, right? So now we've got $1.2 trillion, $3.5 trillion, add those together. It's, it's just roughly $5 trillion of new debt. Now, mind you, this has nothing to do with the actual budget itself, which they still have to pass the continuing resolution and raise the debt ceiling in order to fund the government for next year for all the other spending that we want to do in terms of Medicaid, Social Security, uh, national defense, education, all those things that actually requires to run the, the country, which runs about another $3 trillion or so a year. So, yeah. So start doing the math, add another $8 trillion or so to the national debt, and we're currently at $28 trillion plus. So, you know, what's a smidge of $36 trillion? I mean, it's just money when you start talking about things, right? So this is where we're going to be hung up here, uh, you know, slightly over the course of the next couple of weeks. But the infrastructure package, of course, covers all kinds of great spending, right? High-speed internet, power infrastructure, electric buses, to put kids, I guess, into school. Um, <laughs> electric vehicle chargers, of course, we've got to start charging more of those electric cars since we're going to try to go be all green here sooner than later. So again, you need more car chargers, which is interesting now because you've got to start paying for this stuff somewhere down the road and electric cars don't pay a gas tax. So guess what's going to happen when you still go to charge your car? <laughs> um, environmental remediation, airports, of course. And look, a lot of this, when you actually look at a lot of this structure here um, about things that should be done. Should be privatized. Airports should be privatized. Um, there are companies that can run airports very well and make a profit center out of them and maintain them and upgrade them. But you know, this, this is the thing about nationalization of a lot of these spending programs is that we spend money on things that would be run better and done better at a lower cost if they were privatized. But those are arguments for another day. Five-speed five internet broadband ramped out across the country. It's going to be great. Uh, here's the problem with all of this is that uh, infrastructure spending is very slow to get done. It's very difficult to get done. It has a very low return on investment ultimately. And so there's a lot of people running around going, this is going to be a huge boon to the economy. No, it won't. Uh, if you remember um, back in 2008, nine. Uh, President o Barack Obama at the time passed an infrastructure bill of about $800 billion and went nowhere, ultimately got the money passed. Um, bill went nowhere. Ultimately, the jobs went nowhere because they weren't so shovel ready. Remember, it's like, you know, these shovel ready jobs. We're ready to get this stuff done. Uh, we we're going to spend $800 billion upgrading the infrastructure of America. Never really happened because these projects are very difficult to get done, very slow to get done as well. Um, but that's, that's happened here. And of course, this is all gonna be hung up in a big, big mess here over the next few weeks. 
Democrats expect very quickly that they're going to pass this additional $3.5 trillion, but Joe Manchin may stand in the way of that. And also remember the Democrats are coming up for re-election in 2022. You got the midterms right around the corner. So a lot of these more moderate Democratic states may have a problem with this much spending. So again, uh, don't be surprised if we don't see some pushback on this $3.5 trillion plan. Uh, that's a lot of spending, and even that's going to get to some of the Democrats that have to vote on this bill when they have to go home and talk to their constituents. Um, outside of that, uh, the next new thing, cryptocurrency is just uh, one of those funny things about life. And we've talked about non-fungible tokens. That's um, kind of this digital thing. And we've seen a lot of digital stuff come to markets lately, people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for digital real estate, a, a house that lives in a digital plane uh, that you can go visit, vacation spots that you can go visit, all digital, right? Don't leave the comfort of your own home. Just get on your phone, go tour a digital house that somebody paid $500,000 for. So this stuff's really happening. Well, don't be surprised because now there are pet rocks, literally pet rocks that are digital <laughs> being paid for $110,000 to $160,000 for a pet rock. You know, I had a pet rock back in 1975 when they were the rage back then. Pet rocks lasted for about six months. <laughs> but they were literally, if you don't know what a pet rock is, you're too young to have been through a bear market. That's just the bottom line of this. Um, but a pet rock literally was a rock in a box, you know, on this kind of straw base and you had to take care of it. So, but my dad loved it because it didn't poop on the carpet or eat food. So <laughs> it, was a, it was a great way, right? P.T. Barnum said there's a sucker born every minute. Yeah, well, they're finding a bunch of them on the, on the <laughs> in ether world, right? So, but yeah, uh, Pet Rock's digital form, now the new thing. Now, there are signs of a bubble, right? Art, when you start seeing things like art, uh, paying go high prices, collectible cars, these type of things, those are typically signs of a bubble. And when you start to see things like this, you definitely know that you're in a financial bubble. Um, kind of moving on here very quickly. Uh, in, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. The Olympics had some of the lowest viewing on record. And in fact, it was so bad that NBC is having to give away free ads to the advertisers to try to make up for the lack of viewership. Because these advertisers all jumped in early for the Olympics, paid high dollars for ad exposure, the viewership was so low that NBC had to come back and give them free ads to try to make up for this for the lack of viewership. But you know, this is just really again just this reality of this woke idea in the country is a very small fraction of the country. It's turning off a big chunk of the population and is showing up in things you know for everything from the Super Bowl to football games to the Olympics. And by the way, the Olympics got a lot more boring once they went through. They used to actually stream the Olympics. Like, you, you could sit down and watch the Olympics all day. Um, it's changed a lot in recent years. Um, so, uh, moving on to the financial markets here. And we're going to get into this a little bit more after the break as well. Some interesting stuff going on with the financial markets. But here's a, a quick uh, shot this morning. This was really great. Shows the actual ownership of the market. 59% is owned by, by mutual funds, pension funds, etc. Not surprising. Institutions. Retail investors own about 21.5%. Very small fraction of the total market. That's why really retail investors are where everybody offloads their products to. ETFs own about 13% of the market and C-suite board executives own about 5.4%. Here's the interesting thing. Out of this whole group, the group with the smallest ownership has the greatest net benefit from the stock market through stock buybacks. So 
<laughs> you know, stock-based compensation, buybacks, you know, initial public offerings. That's where all the money's made um, is in the smallest fraction of the actual overall market. Look, when we come back from the break, I'm going to stay right here because we're going to talk a little bit about where we are in the markets right now um, and look at some really interesting kind of valuation metrics that show you just where we are within the overall cycle of the market as well. So when we come back from the break, we'll kind of visit about that a little bit, talk a little bit more about the underlying kind of structure of the market, where we are at this moment. And, you know, when we and we go back and look at some of these factors about ownership of the markets and who owns it and who's most at risk and talking about pet rocks, <laughs> we will, uh, you know, it all kind of makes sense when you're, when you're seeing pet digital pet rocks for $160,000. What I'm going to show you next all makes sense. Don't go away. More of the Real Investment Show coming right up. daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. talking about a few minutes ago signs of a bubble i guess is really what we should have named the show this morning because you know when you're starting to see things like <laughs> non-fungible tokens and this whole idea that we can buy digital things and they'll retain value is you know kind of an important concept of exuberance uh, this is what we often see happen um, when you start seeing people pay astronomical amounts for art uh, for cars, those type of things. A, that just suggests that people have a lot of excess liquidity. And we, and of course, we have to say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek when we talk about people with a lot of excess liquidity. It's a very small fraction of the market. The top 10% of income earners have that liquidity. They're the ones that are driving this, right? It's not, it's not the you know, average Joe American you know, paying $160,000 for a pet rock when he's just trying to qualify for a mortgage to buy a house, right? So, you know, we got to keep this in context of who this is, but these are, these are signs that you're basically getting into a market that's going to have difficulties at some point going forward. And I wanted to go through a few charts that really kind of point this out in particular, because again, the, the, the issue of digital pet rocks for $160,000 is just a byproduct of the exuberance of the market that's been driven over the last decade by a lot of excess liquidity. And no, this time is not different. Yes, the underlying makeup of the market is different. The exuberance is not. The end result will not be any different. The, you know, We have not figured out a way, ultimately, to keep the markets from having big crashes. In fact, what will happen is that you'll have more frequent crashes um, as long as you continue to do these type of, of things, right? So it's just it's just a function of where we are in the markets. But 
Um, there's a great chart out showing the non-financial market capitalization versus gross value added from John Hussman. Um, talk, and, and really what this shows you is when you're talking about you know, the value of companies, what is the real value of the companies that you're investing in? And we're currently paying for investments. And this is where we kind of lose the idea of investing, right? It's right now we just kind of buy stuff because it's going up, but that's not investing, that's gambling. When you invest in a company, if I came to you with a business plan and say, hey, I got this great idea for a business, right? Now, my business, it's this really cool widget, but I'm not going to make money for probably 20 years. Um, probably going to have very low rates of sales. Um, it's, it's probably not going to be very popular, <laughs> but, you know, this is this is my business plan. And, and, you, and I just want you to give me a couple hundred thousand dollars of your hard-earned money, um, money. And you'd probably tell me no. You'd probably say that that business plan doesn't make it. But you do this every day in the stock market. You buy these type of companies. And, and we see this happening. And again, and it's not just in the financial markets. It's really kind of all across the board right now. We're seeing this in a lot of various places. And this is a function of psychology and excess liquidity and the environment of speculation that we have created because of this idea that there is an insurance policy against risk, right? And this is the very definition of moral hazard. But this is the federal what the Federal Reserve has done is created this insurance policy, a perceived policy. It's not a real one, but there's this perceived policy against financial risk that the Fed won't let the markets go down. That's the belief. We'll see what happens. But you know, overpaying for assets always winds up different, you know, not working out well for people. And this is where you start to see also these type of charts that come out talking about, well, if you just invested over the long term, there was a, a great tweet out this morning. <laughs> the tweet was equity total return equals dividend yield plus earnings growth plus the delta in PE, the change in PE, which is true. That, that's, a, that's a true formula. Over the last 100 years, digital uh, dividend yield has been 3 to 4%. Earnings growth has been 5 to 6 on average, and low real yields support PEs. Okay, so over the last 100 years, true. Dividend yields have been 3 to 4%. That's true. Problem is, is they're less than 2 today. Earnings growth was 5 to 6%. That's around 3 today. And low real yields don't really support PE. There's no, there is no historical evidence that low PE support yield. In fact, if you go back and look at periods where we had very low PEs historically, they typically aligned with the peaks of major bull markets. So entirely a wrong concept. But see, trying to justify why overpaying, this is, this is simply a justification for overpaying for value of stocks. Now, here's where he really, this is where he really kicks it off into to idiocy. Not owning stocks long-term is like betting black for life at a roulette table where most of the numbers are red. Okay? Now, that's completely stupid because here's what he completely missed in all this. So he has this great chart here. Yeah, 12.5%, uh, you know, not over the last 100 years, right? So if you had bought stocks 100 years ago and held them for the last 100 years, you would have made 9.6% on your money. Okay? 
5% of that came from PE adjustments. 4.5% came from earnings growth and dividends. Now, if you just owned them in the last 20, so if you bought stocks exactly 25 years ago, your return's been 12.5%. But see, there's the trick that nobody tells you about. They tell you, they show you this great chart. It's like, well, yeah, just throw your money in the market. You're going to make 12.5% a year. No, that's not what happens. 25 years ago was 1995. So you made money for five years in the market, and then you went nowhere for 13 years. You lost 50% of your money twice, got back to even in 2013 on a total return basis, and then made some money between 2013 and today. So the entire bulk of that 12.5% annualized rate of return occurred in the five years prior to 2000 and in the seven years post-2013. Go back 100 years, that 9.6% only occurred during three periods. From 1929 to 1954, you made no money. From 1971 to basically 1990, you really made not much money. So it always depends on where you start. And what was the, where were you at the point where you had the opportunity to make the most amount of money on returns was when valuations were low. If you invested with valuations below, yes, you pulled a decent return from your investments, not when you're trading at 30 times earnings and at a period of time where your five-year annualized rates of return are now sub-zero, historically speaking, from valuations. So the odds are that if you buy off on that premise, and yes, I'm going to have to write an article on, on stupidity, if you buy into this premise that, yeah, I can invest in an overvalued market because interest rates are low, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Not today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. This doesn't mean you need to be in cash. It just means you need to realize the environment that you're playing with. You're investing in overvalued companies. You're investing in overvalued market. And forward returns from that type of environment are going to be low. And look, if you don't even believe that, just take a look at it. implied equity risk premium. It is now the lowest level on record. Stocks are exceedingly rich at this point. And when you over, again, you just can't say this enough, and apparently nobody really understands this, but you can't cover this idea enough to understand that when you overpay for an asset, your return is going to be lower. Let me make this really simple for you, something you can understand. You walk into a car dealership. There's a Honda Civic sitting on the on the showroom floor price tag is a hundred thousand dollars are you going to pay a hundred thousand dollars for a honda civic now i'm sure there's some idiot out there that said well if i convert it to an nft then <laughs> you know <laughs> and i have an nft of a honda civic yeah i'll pay a hundred thousand dollars for it the point is if i pay a hundred thousand dollars for a honda civic I am not going to get my money back when I go to sell it at some point in the future. Right? If you if you go into a neighborhood and every house in the neighborhood is $250,000 and you pay half a million dollars for the house at the end of the street in that neighborhood, you're not going to get your money back. Right? 
overpaying for an asset, any asset, no matter what it is, if you overpay for it, your rate of return is going to be low. doesn't mean it has to be negative. It just means it's not going to be very good. And the same thing applies to the stock market. And yes, there are periods of time where you get into points of exuberance where you can overpay for assets and get away with it. And we're in one of those periods right now. But if you're not managing the risk, and if you're not managing the expectations, you're going to wind up very disappointed. I got an email yesterday from a guy saying, uh, you know, I'm, I manage my money. I'm doing very well because I invest in, you know, high growth stocks. And I'm like, well, that's great. When are you going to know not to? And that's the point. Last chart here, just to kind of sum up the point. Talking about market fragility. Cash flow as a percentage of market cap is a new low. This is the cash flow of companies. What companies actually generate in terms of cash flow relative to the value of the company. Now, if you're overpaying for companies to the point that cash flow as a percentage of their value is at a record low, you might want to pay attention to what you're actually paying for a company. Because the last time that we were this low in terms of cash flow to market cap was in 1999. Be right back after the break. Listening to the Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. We'll uh, jump over to our YouTube uh, chat channel and uh, answer a few questions. Some interesting comments out this morning um, that are worth discussing. So if you're watching our live stream, just uh, jump on the chat channel right now. And uh, feel free to join into the chat, ask your questions, always try to answer those. If not, uh, if you're driving in your car this morning, doing what you're supposed to do, going to work, I beat you here. Uh, but <laughs> feel free to swing by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the Ask a Question button and ask whatever questions I can do to help you. More than happy to do it. By the way, hopefully either today or tomorrow, we are launching our brand new website, completely re renovated, renovated, redesigned, uh, all to make it faster, easier for you to use and uh, to communicate with us. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. Um, so, but no, good question here. First of all, uh, never forget to water your pet rock. So yeah, um, bad things happen when you don't water your pet rock. Seriously, um, why would I invest new money into the market? Um, should I wait until valuations come down? Here's the problem with that. And, and we talked about this on the show before, and this is, this, isn't a very, uh, this is an important concept to understand about investing. Part of investing is understanding the table that you're playing at. If I go into a casino, and I know I, 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 know I equate a lot to gambling. I'm not, a, I'm not a gambler. I don't go to Vegas. <laughs> 
Vegas every weekend, but it's an easy, it's an easy analysis, uh, uh, analogy, right? Um, if I go sit down at a table and I'm playing a hand of blackjack or poker, whatever it is, I can understand and assess my risk of each bet by looking at the cards I'm dealt. So again, if I'm dealt, if I'm playing blackjack, um, where you're trying to get a total of 21 points and I get a two and a four, then betting on that hand, trying to get towards 21 without busting 21 points is gonna be very difficult. Can you, can you do it? Yeah, absolutely you can, right? But it's gonna be difficult. So probably not going to bet heavily on that hand versus, you know, if I get two tens, you know, I've got a fairly decent chance of winning my hand. So I can judge. And, and the point is, is that when I'm dealt a hand of cards, whether it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's Texas Hold'em or five card stud or whatever, as soon as I'm dealt my hand, I can assess fairly quickly what my odds are of winning or losing that hand, and I can adjust my bets accordingly. Unfortunately, when you're dealing with the financial markets, you can't assess risk in that same manner. We know risk is high because valuations are elevated, but valuations have very little value in the short term, over the course of days, weeks, or even a few months, valuations have little to tell you. What valuations tell you in the short term is the level of exuberance in the markets. That's what it tells you. Psychology is very bullish right now. People are willing to pay 30 times earnings for stocks or more in the current environment. Now, what valuations do tell you is that over the course of the next decade, returns are going to be very low. And that's due to a couple of reasons. One, a crash is probably somewhere in your cards over the course of the next five years, 30, 40, 50%. That's going to wipe out a bunch of your gains. Given the deviation from long-term means that we have, a retest of the 2007 highs is possible. So in other words, you'll wipe out about six years worth of gains pretty quickly. But you can't invest that way. You can't invest going, okay, I know this crash is going to occur eventually. I don't know when, so I'm going to sit in cash until then. And this is a point I've made before. If, you're, if your goal is to make 6% a year on your money, and that gets you to your retirement goal, and you miss five years of returns to avoid a crash, then the problem is, is that you've backlogged those, those years of no returns waiting for that crash. In other words, the money you missed out on, the opportunity you missed out on was just as bad for your financial outcome as suffering the crash. So we have to manage our portfolios for today for what it is. And, that, and that's when we talk a lot about risk management, you know, reducing risk when you need to investing in things that, you know, have some value to them because they'll weather a downturn better than others. You won't wake up one morning and your stock won't be down 40%, which will happen to a lot of these companies with no earnings. You know, companies like Costco or Walmart, you know, you're not going to wake up with those stocks down 20, 30% of the day, right? 
they'll be down, but they're not going to be down 20 or 30%. So you can protect the value of your portfolio by selecting your investments better as well. But we have to navigate the markets for what they are. Because again, missing out on growth opportunity is just as dangerous as suffering the crash. And unfortunately, as investors, we have to do both. We've got to avoid the crash and make money. So it's, it's not an easy job, but it's something that we have to do. So great question, but this is the one, uh, we get this question more often than not is like, you know, why, you know, you know after the next crash lands, I'm going to come hire you to manage my money. Okay, five years from now, we'll see you or <laughs> whenever it occurs. But you've missed out an opportunity between now and then. Look, we even get people coming in our office today that have been out of the market since 2009, and now they're going, should I get back in? You know, this is the problem with trying to wait out valuation corrections. Will it occur? Yes. When will it occur? Nobody knows. And what will cause it? Nobody knows. Um, given that the Fed is now likely to start hiking rates in next year, that is probably your first signal that the next bear market is coming. Taper will be first, then rate hikes, then inverted yield curve. Those are your three big warning signs. I've got an article coming out on that shortly. Um, you know, so here's, you know, kind of one of the other issues and, and, yeah, and, and back to kind of the cryptocurrency, you got a question here. Well, isn't that the working pr principle of USDT, which is stable coins? Yeah. Uh, you know, on the cryptocurrency front, there are people that are trying to delve into providing a stable coin. They're not getting a lot of traction. Why? Because they don't go up and down. <laughs> so... You know, ultimately, that's what I was saying is that you, you're going to come to to a situation to where you will have a much more stable environment in cryptocurrency at some point. And and very likely, once government gets involved, it'll be one coin. That will be your choice. Because, again, this goes back to security, goes back to stability, goes back to being able to track, regulate and have authoritative control over the currency and again, what we'll wind up with ultimately is that Bitcoin and Ether and all these other ones, they'll go away entirely. And there will be one government issued coin, most likely, that you'll be able to use for a digital, a digital system. And, and look, and, and this is kind of one of the points about vaccine passports as well. You know, once you can get everybody into a situation where everybody's registered with the government, right? then you can really make the push at that point towards a cashless society, which is the goal. Get rid of printed cash, right? It's too hard to track. Yes, dollars have serial numbers on them, but you know I've got money in my wallet right now that nobody's for sure that there's money in my wallet, right? If I go to spend it, they can track that serial number through the, through the chain of, of transactions, right? As it runs through the bank, it gets scanned, they know where it is. But while it's sitting in my pocket, nobody knows where it is. If I can get to a cashless society to where everything is digital, then I know where everything is all the time and who owns it and how much. And I can then tax it, I can regulate it, I can control it, I can, I can monitor it. All those things, you know, Big Brother is coming for your money. <laughs> Just function of time. Uh, last thing here, of course, um, you know, again, you know, this is one of the valuable lessons over time. Uh, and, and this was, you know, a comment made time in the market, not timing the market. I learned that the hard way. 
Absolutely right. You have to invest long-term. Whenever you invest, you have to invest long-term. But that doesn't mean that you buy and hold long-term. Because again, as we talked about earlier, a lot of your, the, the vast majority of your returns in your portfolio will come from the timing that you start your investing process. You know, if you started in 1995, you've made very good returns. If you started in 2000, your returns aren't nearly as good. It's always about when you start your investing journey, not if you start. Should you invest and invest for the long-term outcome? Absolutely, positively, yes. Do you do it with reckless disregard for valuations and potential for capital loss? No, you do not. Because if you make a bunch of money in the market and you've done well over the last decade, which you should have, if you wind up giving the majority of that up during the next crash, what was the point? Getting back to even is not the same thing as making money. And this was a very tough lesson that investors learned in 1999 that were ready to retire then, found out 13 years later they had made no financial gains whatsoever and still haven't retired. So, yes, time in the market, most importantly. And here's, a, here's the interesting point about this. Can you successfully time the market? In other words, be all in or all out? That answer is absolutely not. Can you manage the risk in the markets? Absolutely. That's the difference to success over the long term in investing. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz. Talk about the upcoming Fed meeting at Jackson Hole. What should we expect from that? We'll get with Michael Leibowitz on that tomorrow right here on The Real Investment Show. Be sure and stick around. Our three minutes of markets and money will be out very soon. Get by the website for our latest articles, comments, newsletters, and more. All on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.